Hi, this is Neil Cooper, host of Assassinations Podcast. If you're a new listener, then welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thank you and welcome back. We love getting feedback from our listeners. Following last week's shorter episode on the faked assassination of Arkady Babchenko, we heard back from a lot of you saying how much you enjoyed the shorter format. We've been doing episodes of around an hour in length, and releasing them on a two-week schedule, but for the remainder of this season we'll move to shorter episodes of around 30 minutes, which we'll release every week. We have two assassinations left to cover in this first season of the podcast. This week, we start to explore the story of Salvador Allende and the events around the coup in Chile in 1973. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. In this episode, we look at Chilean President Salvador Allende and the murderous events that preceded and followed on from his downfall. On the morning of September 11th, 1973, the phone lines to the office of President Salvador Allende were cut. Supporters of the President had already been arrested in dawn raids, and rebel soldiers roamed the streets of Santiago, the capital of Chile. A coup d'etat was unfolding. Senior officers of the Chilean military had risen up against their president. Tanks and armoured cars roared towards the gates of Allende's official residence. From inside the gates of the presidential palace, forces loyal to Allende were ready to fight back. Though the timing of the attack was a surprise, everyone in Chile knew that civilian government had long been hanging by the merest thread. Well armed and committed to their leader, the defenders of the president met the military assault with a hail of small arms and RPG fire. Allende himself took to the front line of the fight. Wielding a bazooka, the 65-year-old medical doctor turned politician took out a tank. But the military forces lined up against the democratically elected civilian government of Chile were too strong. Chaos soon reigned as military aircraft started to bomb the presidential palace, driving out or killing the armed defenders. Faced with defeat, 
President Allende retreated inside in order to broadcast a radio message to the people of Santiago. Workers of my country, I have faith in Chile and in its destiny. Other men will overcome this dark and bitter moment when treason seeks to prevail. Keep in mind that, much sooner rather than later, the great avenues will again be opened through which will pass free men to construct a better society. Long live Chile! Long live the people! Long live the workers! Then the residents fell to the mutinous armed forces. Shortly thereafter, President Allende was dead. From the moment that Salvador Allende won the 1970 presidential election, he had been caught between two seemingly irreconcilable forces. From below, Allende's radical supporters dreamed of revolution and a socialist workers' republic, while from above, the president's conservative political opponents planned the downfall of a man they considered to be a dangerous threat to their wealth and power. So, come with me, tarry a while in a country where Cold War scheming became brutal reality. Listen as the plot to bring down an elected president unfolds from the army barracks of Santiago to the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. Salvador Allende was a hero to the left during the Cold War. An eloquent, professorial politician, he was influenced by Marxism and the anti-colonial struggles of the post-war era. Allende wanted Chile to be a truly independent, sovereign nation, not a puppet state in the camp of either the United States or the Soviet Union. Rather, Allende advocated what he called La Via Chilena, the Chilean way. Not communist, not capitalist, but rather a form of social democracy that sought to use the benefits of both the public sector and private enterprises for a broader national good. Allende was part of a long chain of Latin American radicals that stretches from 19th century General Simón Bolívar to modern political leaders such as Enrico Morales. Allende sought to reform patterns of land ownership, reduce the power of elites, and awaken a movement for national liberation from foreign domination. To the very wealthy ruling class of Chile, and to the Nixon administration in Washington, this radical national program, the Chilean Way, amounted to nothing other than communism by another name. In the 1970s, the Cold War was in full swing, and the United States was never going to be happy about a leftist government in Chile. The Nixon administration was concerned that Allende might make alliances with the Soviet Union and threaten U.S. commercial interests. Or, as Nixon's National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger bluntly put it, 
the United States was not going to let a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its people. The country was very socially unequal. A relatively tiny number of people owned most of the land and natural resources. The poor, especially people of indigenous heritage, were politically sidelined and economically disenfranchised, with few opportunities for social mobility. The issue of persistent and rampant social inequality always overshadowed politics in Chile and in South America more generally. These antagonisms were made more pernicious by the racial tensions that existed between the white, native and mixed peoples of the region. For centuries in Chile, indigenous peasants were displaced and faced brutal repression. In the 20th century, the plight of these poor people moved many young intellectuals who were also influenced by socialist and anti-colonial ideologies. Salvador Allende had been one of these young radicals. He was born in 1908 to a modest middle-class family in the Chilean capital Santiago. He did well at school and went to university to become a doctor. As a student in the 1920s, Allende got involved in radical politics. Later, he went on to lead other young left-wingers who would sometimes get involved in street fights against an emerging force of right-wing groups that wanted to emulate the fascists that were then gaining power in Europe. Allende felt that Chilean society was just not working in the interests of most ordinary people. He believed that Chile would be a better country if the poor and oppressed people could rise up and build a fairer society. But he also believed that it was possible to change the social and economic system through democratic political reforms. In Allende's youth, Chile had either been ruled as a dictatorship or by very conservative governments that did the bidding of an aristocratic elite. However, Chilean politics started to change in the middle of the 20th century. The rise of popular demands for change resulted in a number of reforms that benefited low- and middle-income people in the country. Throughout the 1940s, 50s and 60s, a series of moderate governments made changes giving poor people greater opportunities especially by carrying out agrarian reforms that benefited small farmers and indigenous communities. The urban middle classes also benefited from better access to higher education. These reforms, combined with a protracted economic boom during and after the Second World War, raised many people out of poverty and opened up new avenues of opportunity for Chilean youth. But these improvements to their lives also raised the expectations of ordinary Chileans. Many people were no longer satisfied to live in a country where the old conquistador elite and the Catholic Church still held so much wealth and power. These radicalised Chileans, industrial workers, peasant farmers and students wanted a leader who could realise their dreams for a more equal and just society. Salvador Allende became that, rather unlikely, leader. 
By the 1960s, Allende was a middle-aged man with a record of public service as a senator and secretary of health in a moderate coalition government. He ran unsuccessfully several times for the presidency during the 1950s and 60s, and with each defeat, Allende accepted the democratic outcome and the Chilean constitutional system. However, Allende was supported by the most radical elements in Chilean society, including communists, as well as more moderate social democrats and left-wing liberals. Statesmanlike and almost paternal, Dr. Allende was not the typical Latin American revolutionary. Compared to other more charismatic figures in the hemisphere, like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, he appeared to be the respectable face of radical change. But to the moneyed elite of Chile, Allende might as well have had horns and a tail. He was, to them, a mortal threat, the urbane manifestation of godless communism. And in the corridors of power in Washington, D.C., Allende represented another unacceptable threat to U.S. hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. American corporations had a major stake in Chile's economy, and the U.S. government had long been involved in Chilean politics. For decades, the U.S. Embassy in Santiago had worked with conservative politicians and right-wing elements in the military to limit the influence of socialism within the country. The U.S. had backed the opponents of Allende in the elections of the 1950s and 60s. In the 1964 presidential election, for example, the CIA spent an estimated $2.6 million, that's over $20 million in today's money, to influence the vote in favour of a conservative candidate, and an additional $3 million on anti-socialist propaganda. When the conservative candidate won the 1964 election, the US doubled down on its effort to influence the politics of Chile. Some $10 million was spent to support right-wing think tanks and anti-communist trade unions. An additional $163 million in military aid was granted by the Johnson administration to the Chilean armed forces. That money equivalent to over a billion dollars today, made Chile one of the principal strategic allies of the US during the Cold War. It was an investment that Washington did not want to see squandered. Despite the fortune spent by the US to interfere in Chilean politics throughout the 1960s, by the end of the decade, support for Allende had grown, and opinion polls showed that he was on course to win the 1970 presidential election. So, Allende's opponents started to consider some serious countermeasures. In 1969, three US generals met with five of their senior Chilean military counterparts for dinner in a house in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. One of the US officers reportedly asked, what would happen if Allende gained power? The commandant of Chile's Air Force Academy replied that, if needed, the military could overrun the presidential palace within an hour. More secret meetings followed. 
A leading Chilean industrialist travelled to DC in 1969 for a private meeting with President Richard Nixon and Kissinger. The Chilean businessman asked the US President to intervene in the upcoming election to prevent Allende from winning. There were important economic issues at stake. Chile was, and remains, one of the world's most important exporters of copper, as well as being rich in other minerals. Not just wealthy Chileans, but Western businesses had much to lose in the event that Allende gained power and carried out the nationalisation of industries such as the copper mines. Indeed, Allende did want to reorganise parts of the Chilean economy and redistribute wealth, but Allende's politics were more radical than revolutionary. His economic programme for government was based on land reform, improved social security, and taking key industries under government control. These were common policies in many countries, including in Western Europe in the post-war era, and in most respects, Allende wanted to extend the existing social welfare policies that had already been implemented by previous governments. But the Nixon administration was especially concerned about the fate of Chile's copper mines. Two US companies, Kennecott and Anaconda, owned much of the country's mineral wealth. Copper exports were worth hundreds of millions of dollars a year to the Chilean economy and made huge profits for these big businesses. Representatives of Kennecott and Anaconda, as well as other US corporations involved in the economy of Chile, made direct appeals to the White House and the US Congress to protect their interests. The strategy of Nixon and Kissinger was a continuation of the policy of the Johnson administration, trying to buy Chilean elections, using local media and politicians to shape the political process in the interests of the United States. As that political strategy unravelled and Allende seemed headed for the presidency, the US government made a qualitative change to its intervention into Chilean affairs. The 1970 Chilean presidential election took place under panicked conditions. Sensational newspaper and radio stories in the conservative media predicted a communist takeover in the event of an Allende victory. Meanwhile, left-wing groups took to the streets to protest what they claimed was a fascist attempt to rig the election. A group of students broke into the offices of an advertising agency that was helping to put out anti-Allende stories. The students claimed that they discovered evidence that the agency was being funded by Anaconda, as well as two US banks. The election campaign reached a crescendo in May 1970, when Allende and his conservative opponent, Jorge Alessandri, faced off in a live televised debate. Alessandri performed poorly. He was ill-prepared and appeared ill-tempered. In contrast, Allende came off as intelligent and composed, in a word, presidential. On Friday, September 4th, 1970, Chile's citizens went to their polling stations to vote for the next leader of their country. Allende narrowly won a plurality of the vote, 36.3% just 40,000 votes ahead of Alessandri. A third candidate, a moderate politician named Radomiro Tomic, 
won 27% of the vote. With such a limited popular mandate, Allende's authority was instantly challenged by his conservative enemies, but he received a major boost when his election rival, Tomic, gave his public support to Allende as the rightful victor and the legitimate president-elect. However, under the Chilean constitution, Allende still had to have his presidency confirmed by the National Congress. In the weeks between his victory in the popular vote and the date for his confirmation, Allende faced a concerted attack by his opponents in both Chile and in the United States. The mood in the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. was one of frustration. Nelson Rockefeller, then the governor of New York and a member of the Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, summed up the general attitude. The U.S. should have been more careful to arrange the election. In Washington, representatives of powerful U.S. corporations that had interests in the Chilean economy gathered to discuss the situation. National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger was joined by officials from the American telephone company ITT, which ran Chile's telephone network, Pepsi-Cola, and Chase Manhattan Bank. Like their counterparts in the copper mining sector, these US corporations were eager to press the Nixon administration to protect their interests against the incoming administration of Salvador Allende. A few days after this meeting, Kissinger met with Richard Nixon in the Oval Office of the White House. Also present were Richard Helms, the Director of National Intelligence, and Attorney General John Mitchell. Nixon made no bones about it. He did not want Allende to assume the presidency. And if Allende did make it to the presidential palace in Santiago, then Nixon wanted to make sure that he didn't stay there for long. According to notes taken by Helms at that meeting, later disclosed to the US Senate in 1975, after the fall of Nixon, the President agreed to provide a secret budget of $10 million to fund a destabilization campaign against Allende. Meanwhile, the US government and corporations would take steps to, and I quote, make the Chilean economy scream. In addition, the US government would continue to back the conservative political forces in Chile and promote anti-Allende messages in the media. The aim of this operation was to try and get Alessandri, not Allende, confirmed by the Chilean Congress in October 1970. As the date of the presidential confirmation hearing approached, it seemed that the US-backed political campaign to have Alessandri appointed would fail. It looked like Allende, thanks to an alliance of liberals and left-wingers, with the support of Tomic, would gain enough votes in the Chilean Congress to assume office. Therefore, more extreme methods were put into motion. For Nixon and Kissinger, all options were on the table. If the politicians in Congress would not stop Allende from becoming president, then maybe the generals could. The CIA and the US military had cultivated ties with many figures within the Chilean armed forces, national police, and conservative political circles. The Nixon administration hoped to use these connections to build up a coalition that could thwart Allende and his policies of nationalisation and Cold War neutrality. 
In September 1970, the CIA sent four false flag officers to the US Embassy in Santiago, spies disguised as diplomatic personnel. Their job was to orchestrate an assassination, but not of Allende. There was someone else who needed to be removed first, before Allende could be neutralised. The head of Chile's armed forces, General René Schneider, was sympathetic to Allende's politics, and he would not tolerate a move against the president-elect, who he planned to follow as the civilian authority. For a coup to succeed, General Schneider would have to be killed before the date of Allende's confirmation in Congress. On October 16, 1970, a group of military officers attempted to kidnap General Schneider from his home. Their plan failed, however, as the general was unexpectedly out of town. Three days later, after Schneider had returned to Santiago, a second attempt was made. Schneider's staff car was hijacked following an evening event, but the general had received a tip-off. He'd left in a private car, evading his would-be killers. A third and final attempt was made October 22nd, just one day before Allende was due to be confirmed in the Chilean Congress. Schneider's official car was held up by armed men in the streets of Santiago. The attackers smashed their way into the vehicle using a sledgehammer. Schneider fired several shots with his revolver, but the assassins were able to shoot him three times. Two days later, General Schneider died from his wounds in a military hospital. According to diplomatic cables that were later released, a CIA operative at the US Embassy in Chile had orchestrated the attack providing untraceable guns and thousands of dollars for the perpetrators. But the shooting of Schneider had come too late. The moment had passed, and, if anything, the attack had weakened the standing of those who wished to overthrow Allende by force. The day before Schneider's death, Allende was confirmed in Congress as President of the Republic. With the backing of socialists, left-wing liberals, and moderate supporters of Radomiro Tomic, Allende had assumed effective power, though his formal inauguration was not to take place until November. The outgoing president of Chile, in one of his last acts in office, named General Carlos Prats as head of the armed forces. This appointment was a further blow to the CIA plot to oust Allende as General Prats was also considered to be sympathetic to socialism. And, like Schneider, he was a constitutionalist military officer who supported the principle of civilian rule. With Allende in the presidential palace, the United States government embarked on a three-year-long campaign of destabilization that ultimately resulted in the death of Salvador Allende. Much of this campaign was personally directed from the White House by Kissinger, who saw victory in Chile as essential to US interests across the whole of Latin America. Kissinger, like Nixon, and for that matter the entire Washington political establishment, considered the Americas, from the Arctic Ocean to Tierra del Fuego, as Uncle Sam's backyard. With plans for a military coup put on the back burner, the US focused on the economic front. 
the US plan to make the Chilean economy scream didn't seem to be working. The economy under President Allende actually fared very well during his first year in office. High prices for Chile's main export, copper, and a large government surplus helped Allende to carry out various social reforms. To the consternation of the White House and the boardrooms of corporate America, many aspects of the Chilean economy were brought under government control. In July 1971, Allende nationalised the copper industry, the jewel in the crown of the country's economy. The international price of copper collapsed. Wage increases were more than eaten up by runaway inflation and there were supply shortages that resulted in empty shops and the rise of the black market. These problems were exacerbated by the economic sabotage being orchestrated by the Nixon administration, which included efforts to cut off the Chilean government from access to international credit. In addition, the US had attempted to embargo copper exports from Chile's nationalised copper industry. As the Chilean economy faltered, there were more and more demonstrations in the streets, with people angrily denouncing shortages and criticising Allende's economic policies. By October 1972, large-scale protests by women, so-called pots and pans protests, where women took to the streets banging pots with wooden spoons and shouting slogans against Allende, gained international attention. Though largely limited to upper-middle-class areas, these demonstrations marked the beginning of a renewed political campaign against Allende by the Conservatives in Chile and by the Nixon administration. In 1972, a nationwide transport strike, which was organised by the employers, placed additional strain on Chile's economy. Employers organised a blockade of supply routes into the capital, Allende ordered the army onto the streets in an attempt to regain control, but the scale of the strike was too great for the army to overcome. Shortages became acute. Fresh food was scarce and other basic goods were hard to obtain. Factories had to close because they lacked materials for production and could not ship their goods. Life in the capital was grinding to a halt. Allende's supporters responded by organising new lines of communication and supply to get around the employer's blockade. It was, in effect, a government-run black market. Using these supplies, Allende's supporters were able to reopen factories. Though the owners and managers had joined the strike, the workers took control and restarted production. This topsy-turvy economic structure where employers were on strike and workers were taking over control of industry, only raised the political stakes. The confrontation between Allende and the Conservatives was increasingly violent and polarising. The US plan to make the Chilean economy scream was working, but in so doing, the Chilean working class was gaining confidence and strength. The situation in Chile was taking on a revolutionary dimension. The great class question was raising its head. Who would rule? The strikes, 
protests and economic woes resulted in moderate members of the Chilean Congress moving away from Allende. The Conservatives painted Allende's administration as a Marxist dictatorship, with the clear implication that overthrowing the president would be a patriotic act. Despite economic woes and angry political protests against his administration, Allende's popularity grew among the poorer parts of society. In local elections in 1971 and parliamentary elections in early 1973, his coalition of supporters made gains. Whatever the faults of the man and his policies, many people in Chile saw Allende as a bulwark against the power of the old aristocratic elite. And Allende was also seen as a national figure who was willing to stand up to the United States. In this standoff, the army remained, for the most part, on the side of the constitutional civilian government. This continuing military support for Allende put paid to the plans of those who wanted to oust the president. In particular, General Prats, the head of the armed forces, remained strongly supportive of Allende. This support went beyond mere loyalty. General Prats was a political sympathiser of Allende. He served not only as head of the army, but also as a minister in the government. Allende's opponents, backed by Washington, would therefore have to act with great care if they wanted to fulfil their plan to carry out a coup. After the crisis of 1972, it would take the Conservative opposition a year to develop a plan and end his socialist policies. During this time, Allende received massive financial support from the Soviet Union, 144 million in 1972 and then 63 million in 1973. This backing essentially replaced the financial support that the USA had previously given to Chile. The Soviet government of Leonid Brezhnev knew that while Allende would not fully support the communist bloc in the Cold War, a neutral Chile, outside the US sphere of influence, served their purpose almost as well. Allende also maintained good relations with Fidel Castro's Cuba. In fact, Allende, fearful for his safety and concerned about plotters within the Chilean military and intelligence apparatus, relied on Cuban personnel for his personal security and intelligence gathering. Castro repeatedly warned Allende that the Chilean military, backed by the USA, would seek to remove him from office in a coup. He counselled that Allende should take steps to purge the armed forces. However, Allende always tended to seek the middle ground. He disagreed with his Cuban counterpart. He believed that, despite the risks involved, Chilean democracy could be preserved through an alliance with the constitutionalists within the army and that drastic steps to purge opponents would only create greater dangers. Despite his ties to the USSR and closeness with communist Cuba, Allende continued to believe that a rapprochement with the United States was still possible. He sought to rebuild working relations with the Nixon administration, 
including making some concessions to US business interests in order to ease the economic wrecking policy that Kissinger had orchestrated against Chile. In 1972, Allende travelled to New York to address the UN General Assembly. While there, he met with US Ambassador to the UN, George H.W. Bush. The Chilean president stated that there was no need to consider Chile an adversary in the Cold War. Rather, Allende asserted, he was only interested in defending the dignity and integrity of Chile, which included the right of an elected government to carry out its own internal policies. Bush, the future head of the CIA, vice president and president, stated that the United States did not consider ourselves imperialists. Bush also tried to persuade Allende that it was a mistake to publicly criticise the actions of the CIA or US multinational corporations. Allende refused to make any concessions to the US in his public statements. Instead, he informed Bush that he planned to use his upcoming speech to the UN General Assembly to highlight the responsibility of the United States not to meddle in other countries' internal political processes. Allende would describe the actions of the United States in Chile and in other countries where the CIA was interfering as a silent Vietnam, as lawless attempts to shape policies and carry out regime change in the interests of American multinationals and to advance the geostrategic position of the US in the Cold War. Unsurprisingly, the CIA was not interested in Allende's appeals to respect the political process in Chile. Instead, at the start of 1973, the CIA defined its goal as slowing down socialism in Chile by creating an atmosphere of political unrest and controlled crisis. In particular, the US intelligence agency hoped to use the Chilean congressional elections of May that year to destabilise Allende. The CIA hoped that a victory for conservatives could lead to the impeachment of Allende, or at least the stymieing of his policies. To that end, the US provided $1.6 million to promote the anti-Allende opposition. When Allende's supporters did better than expected in those elections, shoring up the president's ability to carry out his left-wing policies, it became clear to the Nixon administration and its Chilean allies that the time for drastic action had arrived. Thank you for listening to the first part of our episode on Salvador Allende. Next week, we pick up the story of Chile in 1973 and explore the ways in which the competing forces vied for control leading up to the coup, the rise of General Pinochet, and the subsequent tragic events that befell the country. Thanks as always to Graham Ronald for our theme music and to Lindsay Morse for editing and designing the sound. Research and writing was done by me, Neil Cooper. If you'd like to find out more about the subject of this podcast, or any of our previous episodes, please check out our website, assassinationspodcast.com. 
We have a link on our website to a Patreon page. There you can find ways to support the podcast and gain access to bonus material. For this episode, Patreon subscribers will be able to find out about President Allende's secret, high-tech, retro-futuristic war room. And we also look at the ways in which his government attempted to use cutting-edge communication and management techniques to circumvent the economic difficulties that Chile endured in the early 1970s. Lastly, please rate and review us on iTunes, as this can help other people find our podcast. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join me next week.